0: This is Vancouver Housing Stories, a mini-series about renting in Vancouver. In this episode, we hear from two vulnerable residents. Their stories raise the question, whose life matters when it comes to housing decisions? I'm Helena Krobath and I produced this segment as part of an audio mentorship program, which you can read about on our SoundCloud page. Today we'll hear the voices of residents who have been unable to get basic maintenance done in their apartments and have had to live in unsafe conditions. First, in my piece, I cannot die in my apartment, Moon Hee Han talks about her experience living in BC social housing after she found black mold in her apartment. In the second segment, produced by Yijia Zhang, an anonymous tenant goes over the threats of retaliation they and their aging parent have faced from the landlord of their slowly crumbling home. After each segment, we'll check in with VTU steering committee member Sydney Ball for some insights and resources. Can you say your name?
1: Moon Hee Han. Do you want some?
0: Yes, please, thank you.
1: So, okay. it'll help you to ask me some questions. So, this all started
0: in 2011. Yeah. I talked to Moon Hee as part of my project to record stories of tenants living under Vancouver's housing conditions. I met Moonhee at a meeting of the Vancouver Tenants' Union. She really wanted to tell her story, and once I had a chance to hear it, I understood why. Moonhee's struggles highlight the particular difficulties tenants face when dealing with bureaucratic infrastructures, waitlists, and housing shortages, which exist for non-profit housing in BC. Moonhee's story is compelling. She believed her home environment was doing her serious harm. But getting anyone to listen, much less take responsibility, proved difficult.
1: Uh, There was a flood in my unit closet. Rather than replacing the broken pipe, as recommended by a plumber, the existing pipe was improperly repaired with the hose clamp. It's a rubber band
0: oh oh so the temporary was on for about 5
1: years almost 6 years
0: yeah okay so then the second flood happened in December 2017 and so they pulled the drywall out Yes. And then what was behind the drywall?
1: Uh, I could see the extensive moisture, stain, and mold on the surrounding wall, ceiling, floor, and in the bathroom. And I took pictures of them and I sent to the new Chelsea and I request for the mold removal. I have a pneumonia symptom, so I took on pneumonia medicine three consecutive years.
0: I asked Moonhee if she immediately made the connection between her increasingly bad health symptoms and the mold that had just been found behind the wall.
1: Oh yes, yeah. so when I diagnosed the asthma in August 2017, I just uh, searched for all my apartment, uh, whether there's uh, some mold. so I did not have any other health issue about my lung and asthma. So, so strange. But I could not find the mall. But when I saw the open the wall between the bathroom and closet, it's, it's, it's covered by the pool of the black toxic mall. I start have a sore throat, the shortness of breath, frequent coughing, chest pain, nausea, numbness in both feet and face, eye and skin irritation, also gum bleeding, blood from mouth and nose.
0: So, when you found the mold, did the New Chelsea hurry to clean it out?
1: No, I send the. Email, letter, phone call. Moonhee's building is owned by the New Chelsea
0: Society, a nonprofit which owns and operates 20 buildings in the Lower Mainland. Initial funding for the society came from local branches of the Royal Canadian Legion and the province of BC. The next step was to get an inspection.
1: Yes, I just paid the inspection report. I had uh, January 2018. The inspection report for Moonhee's apartment was pretty damning. The
0: report concluded that the air in the suite showed very high levels of toxigenic mold. It found that proper guidelines were not followed when the mold was first removed from the hallway, and it went so far as to say the suite was not fit for human habitation. The lab report recommended further steps to remediate the suite.
1: It's, it's not a unique case. I heard so many social housing legend story, the seniors uh, disabled the other. I heard so many stories that when the residents complain about the mold issue, the manager in the social housing deny. Also New Chelsea's uh, mold inspection report is the same conclusion. There is a um, should be made by
0: Despite the... the findings with clear levels of toxigenic mold, Moonhee was not relocated. In fact, the report recommended that anyone entering the suite wear full protective gear, including a respirator. When the report was finished, the inspector actually phoned Moonhee personally to make sure she wasn't staying in the suite.
1: Well, I already moved out it's, it's a human instinct. I is eating. I cannot open my eye then. So after a request, I just uh, move out. However, this put Moon Hee in the position of depending on her credit cards to get by, and after a while, she ran out of resources. I never thought that they will not give me the another renting place this long one year, three months. The social housing residents are the poor people. They don't have power and money. They should be go to on the street or at the camp. They should shut their mouth. So I'm a disabled person, low income person. So they don't care
0: moon added that many of the people who access social housing are seniors or folks with disabilities who rely on their homes and may not know the risks associated with their building environment.
1: It's not their house, also it's not the poor people's house, it's a public house. So they just focus on the money, it's, it's like a money allocation issue. So. But the people just uh, don't have a power and money to move out. Also, it's a justice the equality problem. I submit mold inspection report, the picture, and all the evidence. But residential tenants' branch dismissed all my evidence. And then they just to listen to New Chelsea societies. So my apartment is habitable. The lab reports
0: commissioned by New Chelsea found that the mold had abated. However, Moonhee strongly disputed the accuracy of those results.
1: So before I move out in March of 2019, I have another mold inspection very qualified uh, person. That report to conclude that my unit is not safe to occupy. The toxic level is so high. Yeah, so I complain to the MLA, Human Rights Tribunal. I send email to the minister. I send the uh, email continually on both persons. MRA, BC housing, but they did not listen.
0: Part of what Moon Hee keeps grappling with is how so many people cannot care about her safety, or that it matters to her where she lives.
1: So New Chelsea sent me a eviction notice end of the July 2018. When I complained and you know, I submit the complaint to Human Rights Tribunal. As a retaliation, they send me eviction notice. So I had a hearing November 2018.
0: So let me get this straight. They, because you wouldn't stop complaining the mold. Yeah. They said that you were causing a disturbance?
1: Yes. Yeah, they supposed to relocate me they remove the all, but they did not.
0: And attempted to evict you?
1: Yes, they, they sent eviction notice too. So I had a hearing from residential tenancy branch.
0: As time went on and she ran out of resources, Moonhee was really unsettled by the lack of options of a safe place for her to stay.
1: I cannot die in my apartment. I should... What I know is, okay, systematically victimized people end up to the open air. Yeah, it's clear. It's i a... I'm the sample case. Money is everything. Money is a life. Money is a dignity. They don't care the other person's the life. Moonhee genuinely
0: feared that she might end up on the street, or as she mentioned, Oppenheimer Park. Oppenheimer Park, which Moonhee mentioned, is a park in Vancouver's downtown east side where homeless people set up a camp from which the city has been trying to evict them. Oppenheimer Park, for many, is the last place they can find some communal living environment to set a tent and designate space for their life when housing has completely failed them. Even so, the city has tried to evict these residents before adequate housing was even available to relocate them, much less in a way that felt humane to their existing families and ties. It's very
1: stressful, psychologically, physically, emotionally. Then. And the hospital, social workers, uh, medical, the, some explanation. And...
0: So what happened in the end? Did they transfer you?
1: Oh uh, The New Chelsea did not transfer me after I <clears throat> complained to Human Rights Tribunal. BC Housing arranged me to transfer. BC Housing is a crown corporation
0: who manages applicant lists for non-profit housing and partners with for-profit and non-profits to build and operate social housing. This means they might help with the construction or land costs or use public money to provide the subsidies that low-income renters rely on to rent in non-profit buildings, like the buildings owned by New Chelsea Society. So Moonhee has finally been rehoused by BC Housing, but the question still remains, why did it take so long for her to access a safe and secure environment to live in? Access to safe shelter is right up there with food and water as things that are essential in a healthy society. Moonhee's story raises questions for me about what becomes normal to live with and whose quality of life matters.
1: It was very sad, they treat me as a dead person.
0: I have Sydney Ball here with me again from the Vancouver Tenants Union Steering Committee, uh, Steering Committee to talk a little bit about what we just heard. So Sydney, um, this is a pretty dark story. Is there any hope and it, what could we do in a situation like this?
2: Yeah, I find it really hard hearing Moonhee's story. Um, at the Tenants Union, we always advocate for building more public housing Um, And getting housing out of the market is imperative for creating a world where everyone has a home. But it becomes really difficult. We also have to acknowledge that publicly funded social housing that we currently have is inadequate. And in cases like Moonhees, it's literally life threatening. So I think that it should remind us that the fight isn't over. Um if all we do is kind of provide like low quality dreary social housing and I think that's what a lot of us picture if we picture like projects or kind of like ghettoized social housing um instead we have to make housing that's really livable and accessible near transit um includes community space which I know is a thing that you've talked about a lot um and I think that there's this idea that living in social housing really means that you should be able to give up your rights to good housing right um kind of like a beggars can't be choosers attitude and it's really dehumanizing yeah um, when really like everyone deserves to have access to good housing that allows them to be connected to their community and like imagine how nice the world would be if we had that.
0: So considering that we really need this um improvement in the state of social housing, where could that housing come from?
2: So yeah, raising taxes on the wealthy could provide us with more housing and kind of lessen the extreme wait times that people like Moonhee face. Um and where Um, When she's talking, she kind of acknowledges that she has to contend with being out on the street if she doesn't get placed with housing. And she knows, like, the direct connection between um, kind of the pathway of social housing and being uh, homeless in this province. Um, One of the things I really deeply believe is that people should have democratic control over their housing and that they deserve a say in where they live, though. So, um, yeah, raise, raise taxes on the wealthy, build more social housing... Um, But a story that really gives me hope about how to create great housing in the system is the organizing of the Solheim tenants this past summer in uh, Vancouver's Chinatown. I asked Sydney to explain
0: more about the Solheim tenants' situation, and she referred to some in-depth coverage by The Mainlander, a news collective covering municipal politics in the Lower Mainland. After a short discussion of what happened at Solheim, we'll get into segment two,
2: produced by Yijia Zhang. So I'm going to read a quote from Nat Lowe's piece in uh, The Mainlander published online called Class Struggle in Chinatown, Ethnic Tourism, Planned Gentrification, and Organizing for Tenant Power. Um, Nat says, quote, the landlord of Solheim Place is Success, one of BC's largest service nonprofits. Success has an annual budget of $45 million and is funded by developer and real estate money. One of the organization's biggest funders is the developer Concord Pacific, owned by none other than one of the world's wealthiest billionaires, Li ka Ever since success became the owner-operator of the building a few years ago, living conditions got worse. Tenants lost their bike room and common spaces, and maintenance requests went unanswered. And then their elevator broke down. Charities, often funded by capitalists, operate like profit-driven businesses and are among the worst bylaw violators when it comes to rental building maintenance, health, and safety issues. Um, End quote. So uh, the tenants on the top floor were actually without an elevator for over six months. Um, And I know we were both at the rally that they hosted in the lobby of their building. Uh, One of the stories at the rally was about seniors literally crawling up the stairs on their hands and knees because walking up flights of stairs was too difficult for them. Um, People who couldn't get to doctor's appointments, couldn't leave the house to get food, and there was actually two tenants who died during the six months. And uh, it's really important to note that meanwhile, Success actually had an operating surplus of $1.38 million in 2018, and they couldn't fix the elevator
0: so faced with those conditions and that deplorable state of the um of the services and the building what did the tenants at solheim do to um, try to improve their situation
2: together the tenants at solheim place created a tenants association to confront their landlord together so they organized a group of tenants they spoke Um, five different languages. There are people with disabilities, senior citizens, and racialized tenants, and people that are kind of more likely to be disenfranchised, and also most likely, I think, to be in the social housing system to begin with. Um, So they organized together to demand what they needed, and their demands were met actually within a few weeks, Um, I think after the rally that they hosted that we attended. So, it's really important because I think working it with the VTU, we usually go through this official arbitration process at the residential tenancy branch to deal with issues in housing and um i think this kind of shows a more like direct action approach that's really encouraging where tenants in social housing they've got a lot more levels of bureaucracy they're more likely to face barriers and it isn't always clear if they're covered by the law at all or if they have the rights of all tenants so it's really important that there's an example that if you can kind of collectively just demand what you need you can organize without these official channels, uh, which I think is exactly what Natla is getting at this piece. And I really encourage everyone to um, read it in full. You can find it on themainlander.com. And also, full disclosure, I'm part of the editorial collective of, of The Mainlander.
0: Thank you so much, Sid, for helping break this down. So I've been living in the same house
3: for 14 years now. Right. Vancouver special... Was run down when I moved in, yeah.
0: Um,
3: and, I mean, was. Like I said, I do feel I do feel lucky because in many ways it's not like my you know, my rent is actually right now affordable. Right. Um, partly because I've lived there for so long, my landlord was you know, not terribly responsive, but okay for the first number of years, and he didn't raise my rent for quite a, for quite a while. So I was like, this is you know, when my ex and I split up. And I was like, I need to get out of this house. I looked around and I was like, I can't afford to leave. So eventually got to the place where my landlord, when time I would ask for repairs, he would say, well, you know, um, I can repair this for you or I can raise, you know, and I can, you know, and raise the rent or you can do it yourself. Yeah.
0: So in this case, it's not that you're experiencing a rent eviction, it's that your negligent landlord is using rent eviction to keep being negligent.
3: Yes. So that's kind of the place that we're in, that we were in up until October of last year when he sent me a rent increase for $200 a month.
0: Can I ask you, like, what kind of repairs were it was it that you were inquiring with him?
3: It was things like, you know, that's, I've been here for quite a number of years, the furnace needs a new, you know, the furnace yeah. needs a new filter, the ducts are going to need to be cleaned. Yeah. You know, it was it was those sorts of things where he was just like, you know, stop asking me these things or I'm going to raise the rent. Wow. Um, and, you know, things like, you know, I mean, the gutters need, you know, the, the gutters needed to be cleaned. This is
0: normal maintenance. This back, is normal maintenance. Fact,
3: yeah. You know, we have, bl- you know, mold growing back along, along the outside, which, you know, he's also not prepared to do anything about. Mm-hmm. Um, the stairs started to sag. And so I, you know, I started to say, you know, the stairs are sagging, you know, you should come and take a look at this when you know, and after about five years, I finally said, you know. We have people walking by saying, so, is your landlord ever going to stick fix those stairs for you? Because they were literally, like, they were, like, at an angle. Yeah. We stopped using the front stairs because they seemed pretty clearly quite dangerous. I mean, we stopped... I stopped using the back porch about ten years ago because there's soft spots in it. So it was one of those sort of back and forth, you know, whether he was going to fix them or I was going to fix them, and finally he's like, okay, okay, you know, get a quote, and we'll, we'll look at them. So I got... You know, I found someone to fix the stairs, and... Um, you know, he sort of talked them through and he did finally fix them and paid to have them fixed. Once they were once they were fixed, and I'm using air quotes, we got a notice in our mailbox from Canada Post saying that the stairs were not up to code because they had been built out of plywood and that they wouldn't, they were unwilling to send their posties up those stairs. Yeah. So until those, until they were fixed, until the, you know, they were brought up to code, we wouldn't be receiving any mail delivery. Yeah. Um, I, I told him that, no response, or, you know, what I ended up doing was getting a new mailbox and putting it down at the bottom of the stairs so that I could still get mail. I mean, the story that I mainly wanted to tell was that, so when I got, it was October, October of last year, I got hit with a $200 rent increase, $200 a month. And what's the percentage? uh, That's about a 14% increase. Yeah, illegal. Yeah, so I, you know, I emailed him back with, if you know, I... Downloaded the formal challenge yeah. form and sent that back, okay. and um, sent that to him. And he mailed back saying, "Well, you know, either you can accept this rent increase, or I will apply to, I, or I will apply to have the rent raised. So that it, because there was that thing at the time where a landlord could raise rent by any amount if they could demonstrate that similar properties in the same area were at a higher rent. Basically, I felt like he had me over a barrel. He's like, either accept the two hundred dollar a month rent increase." which is substantial. It's a lot. That's a lot out it's of your income in argument, a year.
0: It's a few weeks of groceries. It's a lot of things. Yeah.
3: Um, or it's going to, you know, or I, I find a way to raise it even more. And he said, you can expect this is going to happen every year from now. So, I mean, they have closed that loophole, but I'm also... But it also wasn't a, I'm raising the rent and now I'll fix things. It's, I'm raising the rent and I'm still responsible for fixing things. Yeah. Well, and that's the... The irony of it is that even with all of that, even with, you know, knowing that I'm living in conditions that are probably negatively impacting, you know, I yeah. mean I've been afraid to even research what that black mold is that's growing on the outside of our house yeah. cuz I don't I don't know how I will make ends meet if I have to move. Yeah. And so um and I don't and I you know I mean I can ask my landlord to fix it but it's not going to happen.
0: Yeah.
3: I mean I don't know actually what we would do if we if yeah. he decided to renovate. Yeah. I mean basically my guess is he's ba- he's waiting until the house gets condemned and then he'll sell the lot.
0: Um and you you work as a musician is that your I do, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And, and for creative people and for artists, it's not such an option to go just leave the city. And I think it's really inappropriate for people to use that comment. I see it a lot in online spaces, just like move somewhere else. And... Well, with the work that I do, um,
3: leaving yeah, leaving the city basically isn't an option. The larger larger cities are the only place mm-hmm. where there is a market for what I do. Yeah. I mean, my career as an artist is very much Vancouver-based. Yeah. My ties to composers are all in Vancouver. My gigs are all primarily in Vancouver, though you know I'm working to working to tour more. But um, it was you know it was moving to Vancouver and finding a music community here that is really um, that's really supportive, that's really collegial, that's really open and um very much a we're all in this together kind of world that made me able to build the to build a career yeah and you know and and um, to be able to make weird ass music for which there is a tiny tiny market yeah. and still survive yeah um, it's I mean I can't leaving the city is you know'm I'm, I'm nearly 50. So leaving the city to start over that's certainly not something I can contemplate until my you know, until my mother has died.
0: Yeah. But when I think about just what the arts have done to make the city great and then the sort of idea that there shouldn't be room I mean it shouldn't matter by what you what you what you do, but even in, in that one it's like such a correlation to the quality of life, uh, that people have come here for and then to say like, yeah, even even you're struggling to stay in the east side of Vancouver where, you know, has been traditionally such a rich space for culture, um, it's a little heartbreaking. Yeah,
3: it's, um, I mean the neighbourhood is very much a musician's neighbourhood. I'm astonished actually at how many musicians live like in the, just in the, just in the blocks around me, but um, more and more of us are leaving. Yeah, and do you have any sense of where people are going? Like, have you got any anecdotes about... Um, Sunshine Coast. Yeah. Um, I, mean, leaving, I mean, they're leaving the Lower Mainland altogether. Yes, I, I have
0: friends who are relocating to Saskatchewan, um, and obviously, like, a lot of people go to Montreal because there's a little more, um, if you can speak French, there's uh, the cultural opportunities with lower rents still, but although that is changing, so... It's terrifying, you know. It's
3: terrifying to contemplate. The it's been. I mean, on the one hand, I feel. I mean, I feel lucky and grateful to have found this house because I don't know how I would have stayed in Vancouver. This, you know, through these years without it. Yeah. Um, and acutely aware that where I am at, where I live, is below market. Mm-hmm. So part of me feels like, well, Rachel, you know, you shouldn't complain. Yeah. But on the other hand, that's what's made it possible for me to to actually continue to make my career as an artist to, you know, to be able to, to be able to build that.
0: Yeah. But yeah, so going forward, what are your plans for dealing with the livability issue at your place? Like, is that just a cost that you've been absorbing then, or?
3: Yeah, that's just, so, you know, I'm, the gutters need to be fixed, so I'm fixing them. You know, but like the, you know, the the neighbors next to me, you know, our next door neighbors, came up to me and said, So, you know, the rain is shooting right off your house onto you know, onto our roof and it's gonna damage our roof. Can you ask your landlord to get that fixed? Oh you should give them his number. And I and I am I mean I am genuinely afraid yeah. of um, someone else intervening because then he'll bring yeah, it out on you. Exactly.
0: Yeah. You know,
3: it's um as I said, it just it's not um I don't feel like I can ask for the things that I'm supposed to legally be allowed to ask for. Have you talked to anybody at the um, is Seacrest or Seabreeze in the West End? They did a really long-held but successful fight against their landlords. Um, who I think was Hollyburn Properties. And they had, um, I mean, they had people who had been living in the building for 70 years. Yeah. Um, who, you know, who were under threat of eviction.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, and I mean, they did. They did eventually manage to get a stay. But yeah. I'm just. I'm thinking about it because I'm yeah. having drinks with one of the people who, yeah. you know, with one of the people who was, you know, who drove that fight. Right. I look. You know. I, so I look at my. You know, my colleague and friend who was involved um, in the Seabreeze fight. Yeah. And I mean, that was her life for four years. Yeah. Um, it completely took over everything. Gave her sleepless nights. I don't even know how she managed to earn, a, you know, she managed to sort of continue yeah. to earn a living, but was just, you know, it was, you know, it was, we were working quite closely at the time, and it was, you know, it was clear that she was not finding the time, you know, the time she needed to really do the work that, she, you know, to do yeah. her work, she was not able to find because fighting with the landlord was taking such a huge amount of her time, her energy, her resources you know emotional emotional and intellectual resources yeah. and you know i don't have i mean i it's a single house yeah. um it's me and my mom and uh and a roommate who um is help you know is helping out with my mom's care yeah. that are living there um we don't have the resources, i don't have the resources to be doing a one woman fight right. against my landlord
0: have you talked to any advocates uh, up till now or have you like
3: you know, I haven't really, I've been, you know, I'm, I mean, I think like many other people, I'm, you know, I'm struggling to make ends meet. Yeah. I'm struggling to, I'm struggling to care for my mother. Yeah. Um, I'm terrified that we would, you know, I'm terrified of getting evicted. Yeah. And being in a situation where, um, I'm trying to find a place to live with my mother with dementia yeah. and having to move, yeah. um and it just I mean I don't know actually what we would do if we if yeah. he decided to I would you know I'm I'm basically waiting until the next civic elections yeah. before to and to see which direction that goes yeah. um before I yeah. before I look at pursuing anything yeah. else it's been such a development developer friendly
0: yes.
3: city council that you know yeah, the thought of the thought of what happens, the thought of poking that bear, even yeah. though, and because unless there are enough protections in place, the number of ways that the that a
0: landlord can retaliate. Um, I, I'm also waiting. I think everyone is waiting to see which way the uh, municipal election goes, and also what kind of pressure we can put on the provincial government. And um, yeah, I hope your landlord just gives you the breathing space to to live here. I don't know, like, well, what will change.
3: I'm hoping that um, I'm hoping that his awareness that he has an eighty-year-old tenant with dementia in the house means that he will
0: choose to not evict us. Right. That segment was produced by Yijia Zhang. Sydney Ball is with me again to unpack some policy. In the piece we just heard, the Speaker mentioned a previous policy allowing landlords to raise rent if they could demonstrate that similar properties in the same area were going for more. Was that a real thing?
2: Yeah, that was a pretty outrageous policy. The Speaker's referring to a clause in the Residential Tenancy Regulation that was called a geographic rent increase, and it did just that. In December 2017, the BC NDP actually removed this, and another loophole in the rent regulation is called a fixed-term lease. A fixed-term lease was a lease that didn't roll over from month to month after it ended, it just meant that a landlord could make a tenant sign a whole new rental agreement at the end of the lease. Because we don't have vacancy control in the province of BC, landlords could force a tenant to sign a new agreement for whatever rent they wanted without having to stick to the allowable limit for a yearly increase. This was horrible because tenants often had no idea that they were signing a fixed-term lease instead of a regular lease. And we already heard from the piece before that it was easy for a landlord to hold a geographic rent increase over a tenant's head when it came to maintenance or other issues.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: It's also worth noting that when you were interviewing the speaker, you referred to Montreal as being a little bit cheaper than Vancouver, and it's uh, worth saying that Montreal actually has vacancy control where rent is tied to the unit and landlords can't increase the rent in between tenancies.
0: Uh-huh, that was noti- noticeable.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, the speaker also
0: mentioned a high-profile rent eviction case.
2: Right, so they talked about Hollyburn Properties. Um, it's actually one of the first large landlords to gain notoriety for rent tenants. In 2007, a case went before the B.C. Supreme Court where tenants from the Bay Tower in the West End went up against Hollyburn. It was called Barry and Cloet versus British Columbia. The ruling has been used in rent cases taken on by advocates and groups like the Vancouver Tenants Union because the judge ruled that tenants should be able to return to their apartments after a brief renovation, focusing on whether or not the renovation required the apartment to be vacant. Unfortunately, we have seen that while the BC NDP have recently made changes to the Residential Tenancy Act to reflect this ruling, it does not stop landlords from issuing evictions or scaring tenants and telling them they have to accept payouts and leave or receive nothing. When cases go to arbitration at the RTB, landlords are more likely to attempt to argue that renovations are extensive enough to require the tenant to vacate the apartment, whether or not that's actually true. Hollyburn Properties has continued to send out eviction notices for renovation at other buildings after this court case.
0: The Vancouver Housing Stories mini-series was developed in a mentorship project supported by Vivo Media Arts Centre and the BC Arts Council. This episode was produced by me, Helena Krobath. Extra commentary and script writing by Sydney Ball. And the segment, Leaving is Not an Option, was produced by Yijia Zhang. Special thanks to the tenants who shared their stories.